Welcome to the First Baptist Cadillac podcast. First Baptist Cadillac is a growing intergenerational family of faith whose mission is to make disciples of Jesus Christ. Join us each week as we engage God's word together. We would love to hear from you. Please contact us at firstbaptistcadillac.org or text WELCOME to 231-261-1112. Uh, Please turn with me in your Bibles this morning to Mark chapter 8, verses 27 through 38, as we continue our journey through this gospel. The title for today's sermon is The Three Most Important Questions in Life. The Three Most Important Questions in Life. Now, that's a pretty bold thing to say, right? Of all the questions that could be asked, these are the three most important, and I, I really believe that they are, and I think you'll see why in just a moment. But right now, would you please stand with me as I read the text? It's a little more lengthy today, but it is powerful. It is important. Mark 8, 27 through 38 says, And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked the disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter And said, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Would you pray with me? Father, what a meaty text this is, and it is something that needs to challenge our hearts today. We live in an adulterous generation. Um, Some of the very things that you spoke to your disciples are things we need to hear today. Teach us what it truly means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Forgive us for the times when we've compromised or cut corners and took shortcuts. God, teach us afresh and anew what discipleship looks like. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. And so, again, we have here in this text, I believe, the three most important questions in life. And fortunately, the text does more than just give us the questions, it also gives us the answers. And the first of these questions is, who is Jesus? So look with me at verse 27 where the section begins, and it says, And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea 
Philippi. Now, you know I love maps, so let's use a map. Let's get our bearings. Let's figure out where we're at in our journey with Jesus. Last week, he healed a blind man in Bethsaida that's here marked with the red box. Now he's traveling with his disciples approximately 25 miles north to Caesarea Philippi. And what is important to note about this town is its religious history. In Old Testament, God known as Pan, and now in New Testament times, it was focused on the worship of the emperor. The name Caesarea Philippi gives us a clue. You see, the original governor, Herod Philip, named it after himself while also giving homage to the emperor known as Caesar. And so the confession there amongst the people in Caesarea Philippi was, Caesar is Lord. Caesar is Lord. Now file that away because that's a truth that's going to be much more important to us later. Let's move on with verse 27. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? Now, did Jesus really not know what people were saying? No, of course not. Jesus knew exactly what they thought, so why does he bother to ask? Well, because Jesus often used questions to teach, and that is what's happening here. He's asking a question to create a teachable moment. Well, what were the people saying about the identity of Jesus? Verse 28 tells us, it says, And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. Now, it's interesting that in that day, there were lots of different opinions about Jesus, right? Just as there are lots of different opinions about Jesus in our day. Now, what, what, what do all these opinions about Jesus here in verse 28 have in common? They're all human beings. They're all human beings. Great human beings, to be sure. I mean, John the Baptist, Elijah, prophets, that's an that's elite company to be in. But still, they're just human beings. They fall infinitely short of being divinity, being the Son of God who came to earth in the flesh. Now, do you remember last week prior to communion, we recited something called the Ligonier Statement on Christology, and it said this. It said, we confess the mystery and wonder of God made flesh, and rejoice in our great salvation through Jesus Christ our Lord. With the Father and the Holy Spirit, the Son created all things, sustains all things, and makes all things new. Truly God, He became truly man, two natures, and one person. And so truly, Jesus is far more than and far greater than the human beings, John the Baptist, Elijah, or any of the prophets, he is God. And here's why this matters so much to us today. Listen carefully. If Jesus is just a man, even a great man, you can take or leave what he has to say. You can kind of use, the, use his teaching as kind of a smorgasbord. I'll have a little bit of this. I don't want any of that. You can ignore what you want to and receive what you want to. But if Jesus is God... Well, then that changes everything. Because then whatever Jesus says, even the hard stuff is meant to have ultimate authority in our lives. And it must not be just considered, it must be obeyed. I wonder how you are relating to Jesus this morning. Are you relating to him practically, pragmatically, functionally as a human teacher whose words are to be considered? Or are you relating to him as the son of God whose words are to be obeyed? You know, I think there are a lot of folks this morning who, they, they really, Jesus is Lord. It's easy to say, but I wonder functionally in their lives if they're really living that way. 
And so Jesus follows this up in verse 29. He asked them, who do you say that I am? And there it is, the most important question that any of us will ever in our lives have to answer. Who do you say that Jesus is? Because one way or another, we will all give an answer to this question on the day of judgment. And might I say that the answer isn't just about saying the right thing on the day of judgment. It's not about what you say then. It's about how you live now. You see, good doctrine won't save you. Book of James says that the demons have good doctrine. No, it's how we live the doctrine. Submitting to the salvation and to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Well, as often is the case, Peter spoke up. He was always eager to get his two cents worth in, and he often functioned as the spokesman for the 12 disciples. And so on their behalf, it says in verse 29, Peter answered Jesus, you are the Christ. Now, up until this point, a common theme in the book of Mark, and we've seen it over and over, is how people did not understand the identity of Jesus. Remember how his own family didn't even get it let alone the crowds and the religious leaders, and even his disciples didn't really comprehend who he was. But through all that fog and confusion, this crystal clear confession comes from Peter. You are the Christ. And as we saw before, Christ is a word which literally means God's anointed. In context, it refers to Jesus being the long-awaited Messiah who was to come to earth to rescue his people. Do you remember way back in January when we started our study of the book of Mark, how Mark started his gospel? In the very first verse of the book, it says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Of God. This is Mark's thesis statement. This is his purpose for writing to show his readers that this is the true identity of Jesus. And so the first eight chapters that we've completed at this point, the first eight chapters have focused on answering that question who is he? Who is this man? And showing that he is, in fact, the Christ. Now, today, Peter's confession serves as the pivot or the turning point in the Gospel of Mark. As the first half of the book focused on answering the question, who is this man? The second half will focus on why has he come? The two questions go together. They complement each other. The second question is necessary to bring clarity to the first. And so Caesarea Philippi, this this little place on the map, becomes a turning point in both both Mark's Gospel but also in the ministry of Jesus. We, we start from here, marching toward the cross. The Bible Knowledge Commentary it sums it up beautifully, I think, for us and puts all the pieces together. It says, at the center of his gospel, Mark placed Peter's confession that Jesus is the Messiah. Up to this point, the underlying question had been, who is he? After Peter's declaration on behalf of the 12, Mark's narrative is oriented toward the cross and the resurrection. From now on, The underlying double question was, what kind of Messiah is he, and what does it mean to follow him? This crucial passage is the point to which the first half of the book leads, and from which the second half proceeds. So I think you can see the strategic importance of today's text and Mark's overall purpose. Well, this section ends with verse 30 
where it says, and he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And we've seen this before, haven't we? This is a common theme in Mark. Now, in in this particular case, why didn't Jesus want the disciples to go out and to trumpet Peter's declaration that Jesus is the Christ? Well, there's actually a really important reason, for you see, the reason is, while the disciples understood that Jesus was indeed the Christ, they did not really understand the mission of the Christ. Let me say that again. While the disciples understood that Jesus was indeed the Christ, they did not really understand the mission of the Christ. You see, even the disciples, after two and a half years with Jesus, they still had trouble making the transition to a a right belief of the Messiah versus the one that had come from the Jewish people. You see, the prevailing belief of that day was that the Messiah would come as a political ruler, as a military might general who would come and conquer the Romans and deliver the Jews restoring the Jewish nation to prominence. And so while the, the Jews or the disciples understood that Jesus was the Messiah, they misunderstood the mission of the Messiah, which leads to the second most important question in life, which is this. What did Jesus come to do? Question number one was, who is Jesus? But then number two, what did Jesus come to do? And this was the issue that the disciples and so many others didn't seem to get. They could, they could get it right in question one, but question two, not so much. Verse 31 provides the answer, and this was shocking to the disciples. This rocked their world when Jesus said, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. See, up to this time, Jesus had kind of made hints and references to the cross, but he had not taught them plainly as he is now. And I can just imagine how the disciples are saying to Jesus, hey, now, that this is not Messiah behavior. This is not how it's supposed to work. The Messiah is supposed to be a conqueror, crushing all of Israel's foes. What good is a crushed Messiah? One who suffers is rejected and then killed. And so with this in mind, it says in verse 32, (laughs) Peter, oh Peter, Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. Never a good idea. Never a good idea. And in essence, Peter says, Jesus, 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 you've got this all wrong. I just said that you are the Christ, the Messiah, and everyone knows that the Messiah is a mighty conqueror and not one who is conquered. Enough of this talk about, being, about suffering, being rejected, and then killed. You are way off track. It sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? To which Jesus responds in verse 33. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. How many think that seems a little harsh to to Peter? You know, especially when he had just had this high point, right? He had just made this beautiful confession. He had just done so well. And now Jesus is saying, get behind me, Satan. Well, why did Jesus associate Peter with Satan in this instance? Well, do you remember when Satan tempted Jesus in the wilderness when we covered that text? And you can sum up all of those temptations by this, by saying that Satan was trying to get Jesus to take a shortcut. 
Satan was trying to get Jesus to do an end around, to take a path other than the cross. Because you see, it's precisely because Satan does have good doctrine that he has always understood the significance of Jesus dying as the atoning sacrifice of sinful humanity. Every once in a while, uh, you know, like in contemporary, there was a contemporary song years ago about the cross and how Satan was like all excited because Jesus had died on the cross. I think it was quite the opposite. I think Satan did everything he could for all of Jesus' life to try to prevent Jesus from dying on the cross because Satan knew. Satan knew the significance of Jesus dying as the atoning sacrifice. And so Satan did everything he could to prevent that from happening. And so tempting Jesus to avoid the cross has always been high on Satan's list of strategies, which is why it says in Luke 4.13, after Jesus overcame Satan in the wilderness, this is interesting, When the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. That's interesting verbiage, isn't it? Well, I believe that Peter's rebuke of Jesus in verse 32 was one of those opportune times when Satan tried to get Jesus to do the end around to avoid the cross. Can you think of another one of these times where most likely Satan was at work trying to get Jesus not to die on the cross? How about Gethsemane? Why was Jesus so anguished there? Why was he sweating drops of blood? I believe it was because Satan threw everything he had at Jesus in a last-ditch effort to keep him from dying on the cross. Well, how did Jesus overcome Satan in the wilderness? If we go back to that text, remember he rebuked Satan's lies and instead responded with biblical truth. And so here in Mark 8 at Caesarea Philippi, Jesus does the same thing. Jesus rebuked Satan, who was using Peter as an instrument of temptation. Well, let's go back to verse 31 for a moment and answer the question, what did Jesus come to do? That's the whole point here. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days to rise again. And he said this plainly. I think you can sum all this up by saying, Jesus came to lay down his life as the sacrifice for our sins. Jesus came to lay down his life as the sacrifice for our sins. This was his mission. And by the time we get to the end of Mark, we'll see that it was indeed mission accomplished. I'm going to throw that same slide up there that I used last week, I've used before. I think it just does such a great job of encapsulating from 2 Corinthians 5.21 the mission of Jesus and why the gospel is such very good news. God made him to be sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God. It talks about that wonderful exchange where Jesus takes our sin and we take his righteousness. But again, the disciples weren't getting it yet. They were still looking for an earthly deliverer, not fully grasping their need for a spiritual deliverer, which is why Jesus will spend so much much time in the days to come, the last six months he has with them, teaching them about the cross. So, who is Jesus? What did Jesus come to do? What does Jesus expect of you? Third most important question in life. Because he does, church, has some very clear and specific expectations for his followers. And sadly, I think it's not wrong to say many of us stop after questions one and two. We can buy into Jesus being the Christ. 
We can buy into Jesus dying for our sins, but we kind of gloss over question three. We kind of avoid it. Kind of like, yeah, I don't really want to go there. We like one and two, not so much number three. We like a Messiah who will save us from judgment and hell, but we're not so excited about him having clear and specific expectations of us. But church, as you'll hear me say on a regular basis, it's a package deal. You, you don't receive Jesus as Savior without also receiving him as Lord. He, he is Jesus. He is Savior and Lord. You receive all of Jesus or you don't receive any of Jesus. It all goes together. And so Jesus says in verse 34, and calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And so what does Jesus expect of you? Three things it says here. First of all, it says we are to deny self. We are to deny self. Instead of living for ourselves, we're to live for Jesus, surrendering ourselves completely to Him. Um, Lord's Prayer, we pray, not my will, but your will be done. In every aspect of our lives, we can't compartmentalize and say, well, Jesus, this is your part, this is my part. No, if Jesus is Lord, it is every aspect of our lives. All the time, we are to deny self. That's the first thing that Jesus expects of you and of me. Second thing that Jesus expects is that you will carry your cross, that you will carry your cross. Now, what exactly does that mean? Well, let me tell you what it does not mean, and what it does not mean is how we a lot of times describe this. Um, it does not mean carrying the burdens of life. Some people refer to a burden or a difficulty, oh, this is just my cross to bear. Cross is about death. It's not just a burden to carry or a difficulty. A cross, the logical conclusion for someone who is carrying a cross is that they will die. So when Jesus expects us, when it says to carry our cross, what it's really saying is that we are to lay down our lives, which is a much different meaning than just carrying a difficulty or burden. We are to lay down our lives just as Jesus did. Third, what does it mean? What does Jesus expect of you? Number three, we are to follow Jesus fully, obediently, sacrificially. And listen carefully, wherever he leads. That old song, where he leads me, I will follow. I'll go with him, with him all the way, whatever the cost. So we deny self, carry your cross, follow Jesus. Here's my concern. You can answer this to yourself honestly. Does this gospel that we've just described, presented by Jesus, resemble the gospel message presented by us? It seems as if we live in a time where the gospel message has been softened, been watered down. The hard edges of denial, of cross-carrying, of following have been smoothed, and the gospel has been reduced to praying a prayer or checking a box for people that are afraid about going to hell. And so it's no wonder that there are so many professing believers today whose lives look nothing like Jesus. It's no wonder that churches are filled with nominal people who profess to know Christ. 
Jesus never apologized for the hard edges of the gospel or for what he expects of his followers. And rather than soften the message to make it more palatable, what did Jesus so often do? He doubled down by saying hard things to cause those who weren't really ready to buy in to to leave so that they would not become false followers. Jesus would often intentionally say hard things so that people did not nominally get on board with something that isn't really what the gospel is all about. His message can ultimately be summed up by saying, we are to live for him who died for us. And that includes denial of self, carrying your cross, and following him, which really is the normal Christian life. I mean, we've read um, The Cost of Discipleship, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He's got some hard things to say about this. He, he refers to cheap grace. You know, and we just want to pray the prayer and receive Jesus as our Savior so we don't go to hell, but we don't take this discipleship stuff seriously, the things that Jesus has outlined for us. He calls it cheap grace. As the old hymn says, my life, my love, I give to thee. Thou Lamb of God who died for me, O may I ever faithful be, my Savior and my God. I'll live for Him who died for me. How happy then my life shall be. That's interesting. I'll live for Him who died for me, my Savior and my God. So that is the third question. What does Jesus expect of you? He expects denial of self, carrying your cross, and following Jesus. That's a lot, isn't it? And it may even appear to be an unreasonable cost until it's all put in perspective by what Jesus says in verse 35. In verse 35, he says, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? There's nothing more valuable or important than your soul. And the way for your soul to be saved is through embracing the good news of the gospel, which also includes the expectation that Jesus has for his followers. James says, faith without works is dead. You can talk, 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 talk faith all you want, but your faith will ultimately be demonstrated by your works and by what Jesus describes here and what he expects of his followers. It is ultimately the best way and the only way to be saved. So today's pivotal text provides for us these three most important questions in life. Who is Jesus? What did Jesus come to do? And what does Jesus expect of you? So let's finish by talking about application and ask the question, how should we then live? First point of application is this. Be daring like Peter. Be daring like Peter. Now, that is the, the Peter in the first part of the text, not the second part. First Peter, not the second Peter. The Peter who in verse 32 boldly proclaimed, you are the Christ. Now, remember, where was Peter when he made this declaration? Caesarea Philippi. And what did we learn earlier about Caesarea Philippi? Um, they would make the declaration in that town, what? 
Caesar is Lord. And yet here, Peter boldly, daringly confesses something quite different. Peter does not say Caesar is Lord. Peter says Jesus is Lord. So don't miss the significance of the setting. And church, in this cultural moment where we as a nation have become post-Christian and post-church, we too will have to be daring like Peter and unashamed to confess Jesus as Lord. For that reason, it's quite fitting that in verse 38, Jesus said, For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And I highlighted um, whoever is ashamed of me and of my words. The sad reality is that there are churches and denominations that are falling by the wayside, left and right, it seems like daily, weekly, churches and denominations ashamed of the words of Jesus, ashamed of biblical morality, and they've simply adopted messages that itching ears want to hear, going along to get along, but here we see in verse 38. The consequence of that is great, is it not? For whoever is ashamed of Jesus and of his words, even the hard words, and there are some hard things in the Bible, of them will the Son of Man also be ashamed. Therefore, we must be daring like Peter, proclaiming the truth in a culture where it's not popular. The second point of application be uncompromising like Jesus. Be uncompromising like Jesus. Jesus, who did not water down the message of the gospel, he did not lower the bar of discipleship. Rather, he spoke the message plainly and made his expectations crystal clear. In contrast, in our flesh, what do we tend to do? We compromise. We rationalize, we cut corners, we lower the bar. We take those hard words of Jesus and explain them away by saying things like, well, what, what, what Jesus really meant was we have viewed sacrificial discipleship as being exceptional and abnormal and lukewarm discipleship as being normal. When all along Jesus has said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Let me, let me back up for a second. If anyone, if anyone would come after me, not, not just the, the elite, not just the heroes of the would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. If lukewarm has become normal, if lowering the bar of discipleship has become normal, then we need to become abnormal. It's time for us to be uncompromising like Jesus. And then lastly, be moving like the disciples. Be moving like the disciples. See, as we see throughout the book of Mark, to follow Jesus, that implies movement, doesn't it? 
Um, Jesus was constantly taking his disciples on journeys. That's why we have to keep throwing up those maps and say, well, they were here, now they're here. They were down in Bethsaida. Now they went 25 miles north to Caesarea Philippi. Um, And it's on those journeys, that's where the disciples learned, and that's where they grew as Jesus engaged them in conversation and in teaching. Jesus wants to do the same with us. He wants to take us on journeys from one place to another because just like with the disciples, that's where we learn and that's how we grow. But we got to be moving. Um, You've heard that analogy, right? It's hard to steer a bike that isn't moving, right? Bike has to be moving to steer it. We need to be moving. And one of our jobs as a church is to help you be moving like the disciples, to give you opportunities to move, to go from point A to point B on your spiritual journey, to go from Bethsaida to go to Caesarea Philippi. And so if you take that sheet of paper that you filled out earlier, the red side, now I want you to take that sheet of paper, flip it over to the blue side. Would you do that with me for just a moment? And this is a sheet that is by no means exhaustive, but there are some key points that we thought would be important to put on you, key points that might spur you on to take next steps in your spiritual journey. There are opportunities to move, opportunities to take next steps. So as you look at the sheet, uh, some of you, uh, the next thing for you is to get baptized, Okay. You've been a believer maybe for some years, and, but you have yet to take that step of faith and obedience of being baptized as a believer. Um, you've seen it happen here a lot of late, and we're very excited about that. And there's just something so special about when people stand up and say, I'm not ashamed. And I want everyone to know publicly that I am a follower of Jesus Christ. And so for the Holy Spirit may be speaking to some of you this morning saying, this is it. This is the next step for you is to get baptized. Uh, for some of you, you've been at First Baptist maybe for a little while and you want to dip your toe in the water of connection and of relationship. The next four weeks, starting next Sunday, we have these things called connect groups, which are specifically designed to help you connect in relationship with people in the church. And so September 17th through October 8th, Sundays after church, it's so simple. You hang out from, for 45 minutes and you meet with a group of people around a table and talk about the sermon. It doesn't get much easier than that, and you, be, you make some very simple connections with people. If you sense that, you know what, I want to do that, I want to make some simple connections, then check connect groups. And there are different types of connect groups if you're interested in being even a little bit more specific. I mentioned October 7th, the next time we have our membership orientation class, Discover First Baptist, um, 9 o'clock to noon. It's a really quick-hitting, very, um, very fun gathering to get together and learn more about who we as a church, what do we believe, what do we do, what are, how are we organized. If you're interested in Discover First Baptist, please check that box. Um, Discipleship groups, Uh, more and more that's becoming kind of the lifeblood of how we make disciples as a church. Um, If you'd like more information about discipleship groups, please check that. Um, Serving, lots of places to serve in the church. And if you're just generically saying, hey, put me in, coach, I want to know where, you can check that. But some key areas we need some help right now are kids, nursery, tech, ushering, and of course there are others that we can hook you up with as well. 
Next Sunday, we have Discovery Hour starting. We've got some really skilled teachers who are able to bring to you um, some really important truths. We've got The Cost of Our Silence with Steve Plater. We've got Living the Maturing Righteous Christian Life with my dad. And um, those are at 9 a.m. prior to the worship service. If that's you, you're saying, you know what? I want to go deeper. I want to learn. I want to grow in that way. Then check the box for Discovery Hour. And then lastly, Youth Group in Awana. Um, if you check those boxes, Pastor David Wilson for youth group will follow up with you. And uh, Shelly, our um, FBC Kids Director, she will follow up with those who check the Awana box. Again, this is not an exhaustive list, but some key strategic places for you to take some next steps on your spiritual growth. Um, be moving like the disciples. And so we're going to give you um, one minute countdown right now to finish that. And then when that is over, I'm going to recap, and we're going to get ready to finish out our day together. And as they're collecting those, let me just recap. The three most important questions in life, who is Jesus, what did Jesus come to do, what does Jesus expect of you, and what does Jesus expect of us is to deny self, to carry our cross, and to follow Jesus so that we might, lastly, my lastly is gone, so we're going to end there, apparently. So would you bow your heads with me as we pray? Father, what a joyous day it's been to be in your house. We thank you for the body of Christ. We thank you for your word. And we thank you for your Holy Spirit, which illuminates and instructs, guides us, directs us. He brings conviction, and he also brings comfort. And so whatever is needed for folks today, whether that's comfort or conviction, direction, would you please meet them at the point of their need? Um, God, in those places where we have lowered the bar and we've made lukewarm discipleship normal, God, give us correction today. And may we um, repent of those areas where we've become very self-serving and tried to rationalize it in various ways. God, help us to be all in. Jesus was certainly all in for us. He gave us his all. He gave us his life. May we respond by being all in as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing in your sight. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.